Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your co-hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm the other Matt Taibbi. How are you doing, Katie? Good. It sounds like you sounds like you were saying I'm the other Matt Taibbi. No, no, no. I'm the other host. Co-host, host, right, Matt Taibbi. Right. Yeah. Although Welcome you're right. Gr- grammatically, that is what I was saying. That was, yeah. Well, hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of the Matt Taibis. Right, I'm one of the Matt Taibis. And this is and my co-host, Matt Taibbi. Right, yeah. The other Matt I don't know, if, I, don't know if I was saying that. We'll have to go back and review the text. But, yeah, right. but cl- yeah. clearly you're right. The I was saying two, two things at once. One of them was incorrect, so that wasn't good. Anyway, uh, do we have a good show this week? Oh, yeah, we have a great show. We are interviewing uh, Stephen Donziger, whose case is very, very important. Uh, he is being, how would you say, I would but say he, persecuted, but you're more technical and precise than I am. I think Definitely the best way to say this is like, you normally talk about having a captive audience. This time we have a captive guest. Right. Yeah, uh, he's actually, we interviewed him on, because he's, he's under house arrest for reasons that are absurd and we'll get into. Um, it's one of the, it's one of the craziest uh, legal cases uh, that you've probably never heard about for reasons that we all, we'll also get into. Right. But really interesting interview, uh, we hope, and we'll talk to him soon. And uh, in the meantime, lots to get to, world kind of falling apart as usual. Yeah. And uh, I guess we should just, just rush just, right into it, Yeah, right? let's do it. Yeah. Let's see. So Joe Biden, um, not surprisingly, has, uh, we, we got some good Joe Biden stuff for Democrats suck. Just wanting to set it up so people know what happened. So basically, reading at the New York from the New York Times on the tarmac in Detroit, Representative Rashida Tlaib confronted Biden on U.S. support of Israel. And uh, this was Tuesday. She confronted him over his support uh, for Israel amid its bombing campaign against Hamas in Gaza, urging him to stop enabling a government that she said was committing gr- crimes against Palestinians, according to a Democratic aide familiar. On a tarmac in Detroit, Representative Rashida Tlaib confronted Biden on U.S. support for Israel. Uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat of Michigan, confronted President Biden on Tuesday over his support for Israel amid its bombing campaign against Hamas in Gaza, urging him to stop enabling a government that she said was committing crimes against Palestinians, according to a Democratic aide familiar with the exchange. Uh, During a conversation on a tarmac in Detroit where Mr. Biden had arrived to visit a Ford factory near her congressional district, Ms. Tlaib echoed a scathing speech she delivered last week on the House floor, telling the president that he must do more to protect Palestinian lives and human rights, said the aide who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe her remarks. Her comments came as Israel has has scaled up its bombing campaign the past week. Among Democrats in Congress, attitudes towards Israel has grown more skeptical as the party base expresses concern about Israel's treatment of of the Palestinians. Several high-profile progressive lawmakers, including Ms. Tlaib, uh, have become increasingly vocal in criticizing Biden for his stance. And of course, Biden has expressed support for ceasefire between Israel and Hamas militants in Gaza, but he has not demanded one. And he's continued to assert that Israel has a right to defend itself. Again, it's kind of interesting because really Gaza has the right to defend itself. Just the, 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 the language is, I mean, yeah, you can say that, they, that, they're, that they're saying that, but you should probably put it in quotes at least so, Ye- that, so that you're... That you're you're stepping back from take, having ownership of, of that framing. I don't know. Oh no, but that's a big. They got it. That's that's one of their the talking points. Right. Anyway, go. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And then Tlaib said it was a very compassionate, honest discussion. But the president doesn't deal with these kinds of issues in public, and he doesn't negotiate in public. Mr. Biden shook Ms. Tlaib's hand after the conversations, and later praised the congresswoman during his public remarks at factory at the factory in Dearborn. I admire your intellect. I admire your passion. I admire your concern for so many other people, um, Mr. Biden said before referring to Ms. Talib's grandmother, Muftia Talib, who lives in the West Bank. From my heart, I pray that your grandmom and family are well. I promise you, I'll do everything to see that they are. Okay, well, that's not really true, Joe, because... Yeah, you could probably call it off, like, now if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Operation Save Muftia. Mom. yeah. Grandma. Grandma. Operation Save Muftia Tlaib could be a thing. Instead could be. of, I, I mean, look, I, I dream of a world in which that's a thing. But that's such bullshit. Anyway, but look at the, she's very, I mean, Tlaib, not, I'm not just saying this because she's been on the show, mm. but she's very bold. Mm-hmm. She's like probably one of the boldest. Remember, she, what did she call it? Like, impeach the motherfucker? 
there's so, and there's footage of her like that, of her yeah. getting getting like thrown out of an event before she was elected, I believe. Anyway, but it's interesting body language because you see what's happening here. It looks what do you, what do you see? What do I see? Yeah, it almost looks like a folk dance because like a square dance. Jill's got the arm locked with yeah. Rashida's. Like, I, I love. I love how she's holding the phone, like because she can't let go of the phone ever. Um, Wait, who's holding the phone? Jill. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, right. So she has her hand on Talib, right? But she's also holding the phone. It's like an optical illusion because it almost looks like because they're all it's wearing an Escher blue. painting. Actually, if it were a real Escher painting, those would be real flowers that would grow into her her actual. Into Jill's back. Yeah. Yeah. Joe's hand would be what. God, I don't know. It just reminds me of the, the, yeah, those are great. I don't know. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to get somebody to do a, an Escher version of this. Yeah. Fans, scene. any fans out there, please do it. You can't tell who's beginning the conversation and who's ending it. It's kind of classic Dem politics, right? Yeah. Like, oh yeah, we'll do absolutely everything we can except the bare minimum. Right. Except the <laughs> one thing we could do. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know this cause you were a little older than me, but like the United States has done that in the past with Israel. I mean, certainly going back to the, to the Carter, for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember meeting this Israeli guy. He was like, yeah, it's uh, America. We, you know, it's uh, they make, they help us. They stopped us from doing the things that are too much, that are too much. And he's not like a peaceneck, but he was just saying, but you know, right. You don't do that anymore. I'm Rashid Talib, where's Rashid? I tell you what, Rashid, I want you a fighter and God, thank you for being a fighter. God, thank you, Rashid, which is a man's name in general. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Usually. I, yeah. yeah. And she's Rashida. So he's going to do everything he can to protect her family, except protect her family and pronounce her name correctly. Right. Cla- classic Biden. That would be funny. You see some guy raising his hand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rashid. Well, Rashid, I admire your courage. Uh, no, Mr. President, that's actually not the member of Congress. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean that stuff's not going to start to happen on a on a more serious scale pretty soon. Don't yeah. you think? What his mispronouncing names or I his mean, promising he, to do to to use power that he definitely has and and but is not using? No, it's going to be more like he's going to start like shaking hands with house plants and stuff like that. Oh you know, right, yeah, remember, figure. yeah, of yeah. course, yeah, remember, uh, famously when he when we the diagnosed cactus. that he saw yeah. a cactus, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I just want to show one other issue, one other clip from that trip. Remember when 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 um, Obama made that hilarious joke about like droning the Jonas Brothers if they talk to Malia and Mm -hmm. Sasha? Remember Bush made that hilarious joke about like looking under his desk for WMDs? Right. So this is kind of in that vein. Mr. President, can I ask you a quick question on Israel before you drive? No, you can't. (laughs) Not unless you get in front of the car as I step on it. <laughs> okay, so that is so they're saying, Mr. President, can we ask you a quick question about Israel? No, you can not unless you step. What is it? Step in front of the car as I step on. As it. I get step on, it. yeah, yeah, yeah get yeah. in front of the car as I step on it. Which imagine if I mean, okay, yes, he's joking, but imagine if like Trump had said that. Right. Yeah. No, no, honey, just just get in front of the car and then I'll step on it. Yeah, yeah that, that would have been news for like. Yeah, not presidential. And also, really, you're going to joke about like running people over violence. I mean, in a way, it's like one of those moments where Trump would do this a lot. Right. You know, my famous Katie Halper TM Trump or Chomsky game right? where they basically say the same thing, but from different perspectives, like, right. you know, you yeah, can do but, Trump or Biden too. Yeah, here you or or Chomsky. They're showing instead of telling, right? So here it's like U.S. You know, U.S. presidents would rather kill you than answer a question on Israel. Right? Yeah. You know? I mean, no, I'm glad no, he not, wasn't like I'll bomb, I'll bomb you, or I'll not unless you let me bulldoze you. Right. Not unless you want to get bulldozed or your house demolished or your olive trees, up- yeah, rooted. Yeah. Not unless you want to give me your cell phone number, then go stand over there and wait for a Sidewinder missile to hit you, you know, or, you know what I mean? Wait, like, why cell phone number? Because that's how they, that that's how they locate oh, wow. their dr- droning, you know. Like they, or bomb, yeah. Is it a drone? And is, do Israelis drone? 
Oh, or, I don't know. I mean, but that's how we do it. Like, oh, that's how we do it. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Matt, yeah. you really are being a Merocentric in your discussion. I know. Of, I know. You're denying Israel its cultural specificity and I agency. I know. I should. I should center Israel. Should center more. Israel war, war crimes. Center Israeli war crimes. Right. Yes. But that sometimes they're ours also because they're using our equipment sometimes. Oh, yeah. It's true. Yeah. And either way, you know, they always we, we do have that special, special relationship. Right. Yeah. We should do an ep on that. Don't they like train the NYPD? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But that's good stuff from Biden. You know, yes. Very I, funny uh, stuff. Uh, yeah. Very funny. Uh, and, and I love how everybody laughs. Like, oh, my God. I know. How weird is that? That's such a White House press corps thing to do. Like, oh, he's such a card, you know? Um, yeah. So that so that's our Democrat suck. And that's uh, a good one. Could also be stone moments, but you know, whatever. I think it's good for Dem suck. Yeah. Yeah. So what I do you got for Republicans? I got um I got a good one from from Tom Cotton, who went on the, the floor of the Senate, had a few things to say about about the bombing of the offices of the Associated Press. It turns out that this is not entirely Israel's fault. Why is the Associated Press sharing a building with Hamas? Surely these intrepid reporters knew who their neighbors were. Did they knowingly allow themselves to be used as human shields by a US-designated terrorist organization? Did the AP pull its punches and decline to report for years on Hamas's misdeeds? I submit that the AP has some uncomfortable questions to answer. Which they won't be Which, able yeah, to answer they're covered from with there. rubble. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Which they won't be able to answer in their offices, unfortunately. So we'll allow some leeway in, in time. In when when, time. when we finish the job of pulling all, those, all that collapsed rubble out, uh, those big stones one by one and we find if we if we find anybody breathing underneath all that wreckage right. well we did that, get a warning so no one was killed oh i see that's right. you know which by the way doesn't matter it's still a, where was i reading but it's still that doesn't make it okay that doesn't make it okay not just morally but like legally it's not okay yeah right it's nicer yes. i guess than doing it without I just, I just love the. First of all, <laughs> they're roommates with God, with yeah. Hamas. Yeah, like, I mean, there's a million things wrong with this. Like, first of all, how's he defining Hamas? Right. right. The idea of a U.S. senator getting up there and and basically excusing the bombing of an American press organization. It's interesting on a couple of levels. Number one, I wouldn't be surprised if the AP changed its style book so that. We refer to U.S. senators as capital U dot capital S dot senator, uh, except for Tom Cotton, right. who would be like U, U dot S dot fuckface. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for forever. I mean, like, I don't know how you could do a better job of earning negative press coverage for, for the rest of your life uh, other than by, you know, cheering on the bombing of, of, of a, a news organization. But yeah, not that I, I mean, think that news organizations have a special right to exist in, in war zones like that. I don't think they do. But they but, are protected, right? Isn't it like press like they are well, like, not supposed to shoot them, you know, but you no one talked about no one said anything about bombing their buildings. Well, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, if... but it is weird. The discourse around like uh, I actually had this really interesting reporter on the show, Yumna Patel, who works for uh, she, she's wait, she's based in Bethlehem. She's a reporter for um, Mondo Weiss. Mm. And she was talking about that discourse is like, first of all, no one cares when re local reporters are killed. Right. It happens all the time. Right. Uh, no one makes a big deal out of it. Like. They cared about Khashoggi because he was someone with like high international profile, right? He was like colleagues with all these people. It is weird. And I think you tweeted about this, right? Something like, I mean, I'm paraphrasing and I could actually go to the source, ask you what you tweeted, but something about how ridiculous it is. It's like, can you kill, can you- limit? Oh yeah, can you bomb around the, the, the journalist basically? Yeah, right. Like, yeah. and so it's like, can you, can you focus your killing of, can you limit your killing to innocent civilians who are not members of the press right as opposed to members of the press but it is you know then at the same time it's whatever you can do to highlight how you know how the, um, the middle east's only democracy is violating all these norms 
I mean, I'm trying to imagine in my head, there's this comedic scene where there's like a Jewish Israeli landlord, Moshe or something. And he's like, look, look, uh, it's a, we have a, we have a, uh, it's a nice office. Uh, it's a little, I'll give Wait, I'm sounding Russian. Hold on, hold on. It's not a big deal. Well, that could, that could, I'll that give could you, right, work. Right? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a big deal, but it's not a big deal. I just want you to know, it's a, Hamas has offices there, so you'll be their neighbor. But I'll give you no, discount. No, this is no big deal. This is no not big a big deal. deal yeah. yeah, they're actually very nice people. Yeah. You don't talk about politics with them, and nice. It's not <laughs> a, it's it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's I it's, love that idea. It's it's very silly. Yeah, and and they and they, they they issued a a, a, a statement the Biden administration. I guess I could go back and look and see what I see what the actual statement yeah. is because it it was pretty oh, yeah. funny. Jenny, she circled uh, back. She's gonna circle back, right? It was worded in in such a weird way that we have communicated directly to the Israelis that ensuring the safety and security of journalists and independent media is a paramount responsibility. As, as That's I, good. They communicated. Yeah. So send, as I put it, send them a text please, message. Oh. Please bomb around the journalists, basically. Yeah. I, I, I don't even know how to classify how, how absurd that is, but it's ridiculous. It's easy when you don't live there, Matt. Right. Sorry. Sorry. I'm in a I'm in a uh, a bomb shelter right now. Mm. Maybe maybe. By the way, when people say that that they're in a bomb shelter, you're lucky to have a bomb shelter, guys. Sorry, fam. Right. People in Gaza don't have any of those. And I'm, I, we, I want to, can we coin a term for this? Easy for you to say when you're not living there. What is that? That's like a geographical relativism or geographical authority, geography, geography, identity politics. Yeah. And that's like, the nice thing about that is that it's automatically. Geographical privilege. Yeah. Geographical privilege. Yeah. I hate contributing to this language, but okay, go ahead. Yeah, but yeah. we got to, Matt, it's kill or be killed. I guess so. The, the nice thing about this, though, is that that argument gets blown out of the it gets blown out of the water, so to speak. It gets rubble turned into rubble like an AP building, because the second you have actual Israeli Jews and, you know, there's a whole debate about how we should center Jewish voices. A lot of people are like, oh, we said it was apartheid. Palestinians have been calling this apartheid forever. OK, fine. Yes, that's true. And it still is significant that. I don't know. Did we talk about this, Matt? That that the human rights that Human Rights Watch and Israel's biggest human rights organization, B'Tselem, have said it's an apartheid state. They condemn. They're they're saying that Israel's committing war crimes, and so the second you have people there, because the logic is that like outsiders are critical, but the people actually there who are living, experiencing their lived experience, mm -hmm. makes gives you know gives them authority that the rest of us don't have. Fine, except. According to your own ridiculous framing, that's not true because there are people there with the lived experience who disagree with you. Mm, that's a lot to parse. I don't know. I, I but I, I, I'm gonna. Well, I'll just you know say, what I mean. I'll agree, I agree with you. Yeah. You have to. Well, as you have to center the Jewess in the conversation. Right. Um, no, but you know, you know what I mean, right? Like it's like it's just again weaponizing identity politics, but in a way that's a total fail because it's committing erasure. It's erasing the lived experience of the Israeli Jews there who criticize the Israeli government. So it's not right. just a question of like, it's not just outsiders. Right. I get, I, I you get You know it. what I mean? So you, 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 you claim, you claim to have primacy because you live there right. unless it's somebody who lives there who disagrees with you. Right. It's like, we saw that, you know, it's like burnt, you know, it's easy to like black people don't like like listen to like the people who attack Bernie as racist. It's like listen to black voices. Like okay, let's listen to black voices. Unfortunately, the ones that are under a certain age overwhelmingly support Bernie Sanders. So, but they're not politically black. So, right? Yeah, they're yeah. That's all I'm gonna say is that center center. It's listen to Israelis who say Israel is an apartheid state. Right. What she said. Yeah. What she said. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so those are the first two of our four food groups. Let's now move on to isn't that weird? And what's weird, Katie? Well, here's what's weird. Ready? Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, 
Goop sued for 3.5 million pounds after infamous My Vagina candle exploded. Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle company Goop is being sued by a customer who claims that the This Smells Like My Vagina candle had been uh, engulfed in flames before exploding. Who engulfed in flames? How was engulfed in flames? Okay. She, she sold a product called This Candle Smells Like My Vagina? Yeah, I think so. Not, not Matt Taibbi's vagina. <laughs> not that color. one. Yeah, not that one, yeah. Okay, Kobe Watson from Texas had said the 55-pound candle had become engulfed in flames after it was lit for the first time before exploding and leaving his living room full of smoke. Interesting. Good, good male ally. In legal documents seen by DailyMail.com, it just claimed that the candle left a black burn ring and the jar in which the candle is housed was left charred and black. Hmm. Mr. Watson has insisted that the candle was on a level surface. He admits that while the candle has a warning that it should not be burning for more than two hours at a time, the candle was lit for an estimated three hours or less when it allegedly exploded. I mean, I don't know how much he, I don't, I think he's being too honest there because I'm pretty sure that he violated the recommended time limit for said vagina candle. But also, so this is interesting. If we, so the goop, there's an image here. It says the goop lab. And I don't know how to describe this exactly. It looks it's like, a, it, it looks like a, a, a floral arrangement in the shape of a vagina. Yeah, right. That's what it is. It is a floral arrangement in the shape of a vagina in front of which um, Gwyneth is standing. Yeah, she's kind of, she's kind of perched. Front and center, yeah. Well, you know, she doesn't want to expose the. She's. She doesn't want this to be an inappropriate image. She could fall backwards into <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Th- uh, lots of things come to mind with this image. Um, not many of them. Safe for safe, TV. Safe for uh, whatever this is. Yeah. Yeah. So Mr. Watson's legal team has claimed that while there is a warning, it quote fails to address the known danger end quote, of the candle burning for longer than its recommended time. Of course, Jody Thompson, the Colby, Colby is not a lone victim. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this. I'm not reading. This is my editorializing. This follows a claim from Jody Thompson in London, who said she had a vagina candle from Goop, which exploded in her home, sparking an inferno. After sharing the remains of the candle on social media, Joy told The Sun in January, the candle exploded and emitted huge flames with bits flying everywhere. I've never seen anything like it. The whole thing was ablaze and it was too hot to touch. There was an inferno in the room. We eventually got under control and threw it out the front door. Whoa. So like a burning vagina candle thrown out the front door. That's not cool. An inferno, a vaginal inferno. Gwyneth's controversial candle was first released in January 2020 and is described as having a funny, gorgeous, sexy, and beautifully unexpected scent. She said the idea had started as a joke between her and a perfumer, but proved to be a winner with it selling out within hours on the Goop site. However, the idea stuck and the candle became a major success, selling out in a matter of hours after it was unveiled on the Goop website. A spokesperson for Goop has rubbished the claims and has said that Mr. Watson's lawsuit was a frivolous attempt to secure an outsized payment. The spokesperson added, we're confident this claim is frivolous and an attempt to secure an outsized payment payout for a press from a press heavy product. We stand behind the brands we carry and the safety of the products we sell here. Heretic, the brand that supplies the candle, has substantiated the product's performance and safety through industry standard testing. I mean, it is, I will say that there's a different, I mean, when some when when there's a warning, don't light this candle for more than two hours, do you think that communicates because it could be engulfed by flames? Or does it not matter? You've been warned. I think if the company knows that the candle's going to explode after, you know, a minute after two hours, that they, they should probably make that a little bit more clear. Yeah. You know? It should be, this smells like my vagina and explodes after two hours of being lit. <laughs> I think here's what we need to do. For the next episode, let's both get those that that candle and light and them. Light them, and the, let's just see what happens. Yeah, actually, Goop, if you're watching, could you send us each one? Yeah, this is free advertising for you. Possibly, so. it's possibly good advertising for you. No, it's just free advertising. Yeah, I didn't right, say good right, or bad. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So that's my. Isn't that weird? That isn't that weird. That's a, that is weird. Uh, for isn't that terrible? So this this is this is here's a little bit for a little bit of fourth wall stuff. This this story was chosen by Katie. 
I think we might have a little different disagreement about how terrible this actually is. Queen suffers fresh tragedy as new dorgy puppy dog, quote, dies aged just five months old. The Queen was gifted the two puppies by son Prince Andrew while husband Philip was in hospital in February, and they have been by her side as she grieves. The Queen's new puppy, which was given to her for comfort while Prince Philip was in hospital, has died at just five months old. Fergus, the dorgy, was one of two new dogs adopted by Her Majesty in February after the Duke of Edinburgh was admitted to St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. The 95-year-old monarch, who is still grieving her husband's passing on April 9th, aged 99, sorry, is said to be devastated by her latest reported loss. It is understood Her Majesty walked Fergus in Muick almost every day around the grounds of Windsor Castle to keep herself occupied as she mourned the Duke. Middle son Prince Andrew had surprised his mum with the Dachshund Corgi crossbreed puppies. On top of that, there's been the problems with her grandson Harry. On the night before Philip's funeral on April 17th, the Queen reportedly took the pups out near Frogmore, where Prince Harry had been isolating in the run-up to the funeral. Muick and Fergus are believed to be the first the monarch has owned that aren't direct descendants from a corgi called Susan (laughs) that she was given for her 18th birthday in 1944. Buckingham Palace did not want to comment when approached by the mirror. Uh, Or Buckingham Palace just didn't give a fuck and didn't respond. Yeah, okay, cute pup. I I just can't. Um, Oh my god, they're really cute. How did it die, though? No one will talk about it. She and ate them. Maybe, right? Right? Like, she's got 30 dead dogs. Is it out of the realm of possibility that she has a little problem with, like, sometimes yeah, she, you're just, right. she gets she, she gets a little impatient and just she feels the need to just bite their carotid arteries? Is that is that possible? We could draw that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, unless they that. deny it. Queen Speculation. Queen eats eats her dogs. Yeah, this story didn't make me feel sad. This story made me made me have sarcastic, mean thoughts about about Queen Elizabeth. Well, even I mean, oh my God, they're so cute, though. This is like the the big sleep or something like that. You know, it's like she, it's she's got a pathology that it's it's an open secret in the household. Right. Like, she, you know, when she when she's feeling down, she likes to to snuff the life out of something cute. Oh my God, know? awful. Right? Awful, yeah, and we're and the is British that are paying the for realm that. Of, that. It's the, definitely not outside the realm of possibility, right? And then she turns them into a candle. <laughs> this turns, candle turns smells like my dorgy, my and corgi, she, yeah. Yeah, and then she says, "Oh, I need another one because the other one's lonely." Yeah, you know, because, right. Because you know this thing happened. I mean, you know, it's not like I was on the bathroom floor choking the life out of it. All right, I'm sorry, but isn't that terrible? That for for Matt, what's terrible is that it's. That this story, it's no that one's gotten to the bottom. Store. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, so coming up, we have a guest who is at the center of an amazing story, an attorney, Stephen Donziger, who has been uh, in the middle of a decades-long saga involving a court case with the uh, oil company Chevron, formerly known as Texaco. They won a massive environmental settlement that would have obligated Texaco's last Chevron to pay a massive settlement uh, to the, the peoples of the Amazon basin. However, the company fought back and used a pretty amazing tactic to essentially file a, a private prosecution that has resulted in this lawyer being under house arrest for a couple of almost two years now. They've managed to do this without having to go through a jury. So he's going to talk to us about this whole process and, and, and about how what's happening to him is being used as a formula that corporations can employ against other uh, types of litigants. And it's, it's a scary story. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a sobering, scary story. And uh, we're looking forward to talking to him. Yeah. So without further ado, let's talk to Steven Donziger. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time you're taking um, because we know how busy you are. Can you just update people about where you are in the case, what the latest is and the latest outrage? 
the one minute story is I helped indigenous peoples in the Amazon win a very large pollution judgment against Chevron and the courts of Ecuador way back in 2013. Chevron then hired 60 law firms and 2000 lawyers to attack, try to demonize and criminalize me for being successful as a human rights lawyer. That put me in my current predicament, which is they convinced a judge to hire or appoint a private Chevron law firm to prosecute me criminally for criminal contempt of court in a case that was rejected by the normal U.S. federal prosecutor, the Southern District of New York. And the judge who charged me appointed the judge who's presiding, didn't go through the random case assignment process. The judge presiding is a prominent member of the Federalist Society. Chevron's a big funder. And the judge also appointed the Stewart and Kissel law firm without disclosing that Chevron was a client of the law firm. So I'm basically being you know, tried by a Chevron judge. I'm being prosecuted by a Chevron prosecutor. I'm being charged by this other judge. And that's why we call it the nation's first corporate prosecution. I mean, no one's ever seen this kind of thing in the history of our country. Chevron has essentially wrested control of the machinery of the, the prosecutorial machinery of our country and privatized it and deprived their main critic of his liberty. And I've been right now in my home on house arrest without trial. I mean, I just had somewhat of a trial, but this is, I haven't been convicted of anything for almost two years on a misdemeanor where the longest sentence ever imposed for someone convicted is 90 days of home confinement. And I've now been in my house for eight or nine times that length of time. So this and, is obviously- And you haven't even been convicted. I haven't even been convicted. But even if I was convicted, no one would go to jail for this. I mean, right. you know, there's no, no one goes to jail. Lawyers don't go to jail for criminal contempt of court, you know, in the, these circumstances. And I'm, again, I believe the charges are baseless and were really engineered by Chevron as part of this 10-year campaign to demonize me and knock me off the case. So just just to back up so people have a sense of how this all got started, this dates back to the early 90s. The significance of, of your story is that you, you, you led a class action suit on behalf of people in the region, uh, in the Amazon, what's Lago Agrio? Is that, yeah, is that what it's called? Lago Agrio, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and essentially... Chevron is being held liable for environmental damage. Right. Right. And so obviously that's a precedent setting, upsetting decision for them. But that is what started the ball rolling in terms of all, all of these actions. And, and yes, what, yes. And, and what, what was Chevron just in just in a, in, a, in a few sentences, if you could, were they dumping waste? What like yeah. what, what kind? Yeah. So that's I'm, I'm glad you raised that, Matt. So in a nutshell, what happened, what courts found is that Chevron, operating via its predecessor company, Texaco, made a, a decision, a conscious decision to deliberately dump toxic waste, billions of gallons of cancer-causing toxic waste into the environment where indigenous groups were living as a cost-saving measure to keep their cost of production as low as possible. They privatized profits. They socialized costs. There were indigenous peoples living in the area who paid a very heavy price. Many people have died the, the cultures have been decimated to some degree, or really to a great degree. And the harm is still out there, even though Texaco left back in 1992. So you really have the world's worst oil-related catastrophe in the Amazon, done deliberately. It was not an accident, unlike what BP did in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. And they haven't paid a penny, even though they lost the court case. And instead of paying money to the people they poisoned, they're paying money to law firms to attack the lawyer who worked with these communities to hold them accountable. The idea is that it's it's cheaper for them to do that than pay the settlement? I think that the way they think about the world, which is money really is their only currency that matters, um, I think they've calculated, yes, that it would be cheaper to pay a bunch of lawyers to keep the indigenous peoples at bay, attack me and others, than it would be to pay the judgment or even a, a settlement that would be less than the judgment. I mean, they paid a judgment. massive amount of money to lawyers. I mean, we just had in my contempt trial, two Chevron lawyers came in from Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher. They each charged $1,300 an hour. And Chevron was paying them their hourly rates to help the private law firm that's prosecuting me, prosecute me. I mean, think about that. Chevron was paying for the legal work I mean, millions of dollars of legal work to have me locked up. And the Wall Street Journal just reported the other day that even as far back as 2010, Chevron's lawyers from this firm, Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, 
met with the SDNY in an effort to get me prosecuted criminally 10 years ago. So what's going on now is the culmination of a 10-year plan by Chevron to demonize me, lock me up, and really destroy my career and my life. And I'm, you know, I don't think they've succeeded at all. I mean, the amount of support we have is incredible. And I think ultimately they will be paying this judgment. And I think they've been very exposed, this whole plot they have to use the or abuse the power of the U.S. judicial system to attack a human rights lawyer. Not to say I'm not without my challenges because I am. I'm locked up. I get it. But like overall, I don't think their strategy has worked. We're getting huge support. More and more people are realizing how dangerous their, what they're doing really is and how wrong it is and how abusive it is. So they, so so Gibson Dunn went, goes to the, the SDNY in 2010. Is that right? Yes. They decline, right? The, yes. The, Okay, so then, then this is the part that I'm confused about. What happens next? Like, okay, so so this is very interesting. Chevron's whole theory was that I, in my people I was working with, committed were engaged in a conspiracy to extort money from Chevron just by doing the lawsuit that we won and has been affirmed by two Supreme Courts. Okay, mm-hmm. they concocted this crazy theory that everything I did and my colleagues were doing was criminal because there was no really no pollution. It was what they called sham litigation. So they took this theory based largely on witness testimony from a man to whom they paid $2 million, who claimed he was in a meeting where I tried to bribe the judge in Ecuador, completely false, been rejected by 28 judges. But they came up with this witness to say this. This is the typical corporate playbook. Okay, it's false testimony, but they paid the guy enough where he was willing to say it, okay? They then took this to the SDNY. The SDNY is like, we're not doing this. So when the SDNY refused to do it, they decided to basically prosecute me themselves via civil RICO. They brought a private party prosecution because, you know, the the RICO statute has a criminal part and a civil part. Private parties can bring RICO lawsuits for treble damages. Obviously, they're for money. That's why Chevron sued me for $60 billion originally. I was faced with the literally the largest personal liability in U.S. history. But it was all after the SDNY refused to prosecute me. So once they start doing it civilly, they have a lot of maneuvering room. They pay their lawyers. They pay Kroll. It's like a private FBI. They have their judge. There's no jury. There's no buffer. There's no fact finder. And it's just they got it in the bag. And that's how they go after people. I mean, they will never give me a jury. I mean, even in my criminal contempt case where I'm facing six months in prison, they're denying me a jury. Wow. So, so they, so they brought a civil RICO case, right? And, and, yeah. and, and the, and the predicate offense that they're, that they're claiming is the bribery of, of the judge. Yeah, it's, it's the bribery extortion, there's extortion plot. And then they claim all the monies that our funders were, using to fund the case in Ecuador, which are passing through my law firm and I would wire them down to our team in Ecuador. That's uh, wire fraud and money laundering on the theory that the whole case is a fraud. So, you know, all these normal things that one would do in a litigation like this, which is like raise money, pay your lawyers, pay your travel expenses. Kaplan, this judge, who's a former tobacco lawyer, interpreted as criminal and he, deem them criminal in a civil case without a jury and tried to then pin that criminality on me. That's why I've always said this whole thing they're doing has been going on for 10 years is an effort to criminalize the lawyer who held them accountable and really to criminalize human rights lawyering generally so people don't do this critically important work, which is involves holding polluters accountable for their pollution. And you know that obviously is intimately connected to the survival of the planet. So they don't want people doing this work. So, you know, by attacking me, they, they get two things out of it. One is they disable my advocacy to a great degree. And two is they use me, they weaponize me as a form of intimidation to discourage other lawyers and advocates from doing this work. And so in, in order for this ball to get rolling in this incredibly negative direction, all they got to do is get a judge who, who ignores a motion to dismiss, right? That's exactly and- right. They just need a judge to green light the case. Then you're right. in discovery. Then they use their overwhelming resources to subpoena literally 100 people. People run for the hills. They panic. No one has money to pay for a lawyer. And it's an abuse of the process. Once they ensnare you in that civil discovery process, they have you. And, you know, right. most human rights lawyers don't have the resources to deal with that. So you're literally dealing with hundreds of lawyers on the other side. And they're pounding you with motions and letters. 
And you end up either bailing out or if you deal with it, you, you can barely keep up. You have no time to actually deal with the real case, which is holding them accountable for this mass industrial poisoning of the Amazon rainforest. Right. It's called a slap lawsuit. You're familiar with it, you know, strategic mm -hmm. lawsuit against public participation. It's not a legitimate type of legal maneuver under the Constitution. It violates the First Amendment and is designed to suppress free speech and advocacy. Why isn't it being made a isn't it a really big deal that the prosecutor that uh, SDNY did not want to prosecute you and that the the judge appointed a like a private prosecutor? Well, this is amazing. Okay. First of all, I've been around the legal profession for almost three decades. I had never heard of this where a judge could appoint a private prosecutor. Upon researching it, there is a rule that in rare, rare occasions, there's maybe been a handful in our entire country over the last 30 years, this has happened when a judge charges criminal contempt and for some reason there's a conflict and the local prosecutor cannot do the case. But at that point, the judge always appoints a disinterested prosecutor, someone, a former prosecutor, and they appoint them, you be prosecute this. And obviously they don't have a financial interest in anything. They adhere to DOJ guidance on ethics of prosecutors and they're supervised by the DOJ. The judge doesn't supervise them just appoints the person. In this case, this, this is totally haywire. The judge appointed the prosecutor who has a flagrant conflict of interest because she works for a Chevron law firm. And the judge who appointed her, Judge Kaplan, is supervising her. She's not supervised by the DOJ. In our country, and this is really the why this is so unconstitutional, and I think this whole case is ultimately going to be thrown out, you know, the separation of powers doctrine makes it very clear that judges do not prosecute. Judges judge and the executive branch prosecutes, okay, through the U.S. attorney's offices. In this case, this is a complete judge-driven prosecution. It's never happened before in the history of our country. Now, that might be a little bit of a technical detail for those who are not familiar with the law, but just believe in me. You cannot have a judge charge and prosecute. And essentially, Judge Kaplan is my judge. He's my grand jury, he's my um, prosecutor, he's my judge, and he's my fact finder all in the same case. It's, it's really not how it works in a rule of law country. How do they get around the trial by jury uh, issue? There's another little trick they use, okay? So on the civil side, under civil RICO, I am the first person charged under civil RICO to not be given a jury in the history of our country. You're and such the way a trailblazer. They, I know there's all sorts of firsts with me because, you yeah. know, they're breaking all sorts of rules when it comes to, to trying to destroy me. But apparently under the Seventh Amendment in a civil case, if you're not um, sued for money damages, the case is considered a case in equity, meaning some other remedy other than money. You don't get a jury under the Seventh Amendment. So when Chevron originally sued me for $60 billion dollars, they got, as we approached trial, they got so scared of a jury that they literally dropped every penny of the money damages claims to avoid a jury, knowing Judge Kaplan had already signaled to them that he disliked me and would rule in their favor. So that was my first denial. I still felt I had a right to a jury, by the way, in that case, because I was being charged with criminal offenses. You know, right. so I never got my due process. I got a biased judge who found I committed these so-called crimes in a civil case, never got a jury. Okay, now let's go to the criminal contempt case. There's a rule in the criminal side that if a judge limits, agrees in advance to limit the maximum sentence to six months in prison or less, it will be considered a misdemeanor and the judge can impose a bench trial and again deny the defendant or the accused a jury, which is exactly what she did. You know, they don't want this case to go before a jury. So think about it. I got convicted or found guilty of felony criminal offenses by a single trial judge without a jury. And then after that, I'm going to be potentially put in jail by a judge connected to Chevron again without a jury. Okay. This is the, this is a parade of horrors in America as regards the trampling of someone's due process rights. And the fact that I'm a lawyer and a reputable lawyer, a human rights lawyer, I have never had a single client grievance in 28 years of practice. By the way, I'm disbarred in yeah. New York by Judge Kaplan. To be clear, I never had a hearing. That would happen without a hearing. 
Wait, you didn't have a bar hearing? I never had a hearing where I could challenge his findings that I bribed the judge, which is false. They let me have a little bit of a hearing to bring in character evidence, people to vouch for my integrity. They would never let me challenge with evidence that I have to show that that witness lied. And by his own admission, he lied. They wouldn't let me even bring that up. So there's been a railroading as much as Kaplan and Chevron can organize in the bar disciplinary hearing in the original civil RICO case and now in this criminal contempt case railroading. Okay. I couldn't even testify in my own defense in the criminal contempt case because judge Preska ruled that anything I had to say to explain why I didn't turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron, which I had legitimate ethical legal reasons was she deemed that irrelevant. So my lawyer, Ron Kuby, Marty Garbus, I love them by the way, they represent me pro bono. They're like, there's no benefit to testifying in this setting. This is a charade and we are not gonna legitimize it any further than we have to end the damn trial. Let's go to the appeal. So every step of the way, I've been denied the ability to tell my truth, to put my evidence in. And, you know, again, look, this is bad for me. It's difficult. I'm strong. I'm resilient. I have a great family, tons of support, 68 Nobel laureates, six congresspersons. Okay, I'm going to be okay. We're going to get through this. The real problem is this goes way beyond me because I'm telling you, this is a corporate playbook invented by Chevron and its law firm Gibson Dunn. Gibson Dunn makes hundreds of millions of dollars in fees off me. Okay, they, they enrich themselves by implementing this playbook that is designed to criminalize human rights lawyering on behalf of corporations that are mired in these scandals. And you know, it, it's happening, Chevron's doing it, but Energy Transfer Partners is doing it to people who protested at Standing Rock. I mean, there are these series of RICO cases that these fossil fuel companies or pipeline companies have launched against those of us who speak out and do the frontline work. And it is really scary. And by the way, the other law firm behind this, we got to call these people out. Yeah. The main law firm is Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, Randy Mastro. He was Rudy Giuliani's deputy mayor, Donald Trump's personal lawyer. Okay. He's been attacking me for 10 years. He's the one who went to the SDNY to try to get them to prosecute me on behalf of Chevron. Okay. The firm that's going after the Standing Rock protesters is the Kazowitz firm. That's Trump's law firm, okay? They were in court during my Chevron civil RICO case against me, watching the whole thing and copying the playbook, which they then implemented on behalf of energy transfer partners against many of the people, including indigenous groups and water protectors involved in resisting the Standing Rock, in the Standing Rock protests and resisting their pipeline. So this is a playbook that goes way beyond me. We need to wake up. And, and understand that that this can't go on. I mean, they can't get away with this or it's going to be, you know, even worse for those who speak out against the fossil fuel industry in our country. What's your current relationship with the people in Ecuador? And the I, I watched the documentary Crude um, and uh, Fajardo. Uh, I forget his first name. Pablo Fajardo. Pablo, yeah, right. Are you in touch with them? Where are they in this process? Yeah. And this is an Ecuador. Sorry. So for people who didn't see the documentary, this is an Ecuadorian lawyer. Look, I've been to Ecuador to over 250 times in the last 20 years to work on this. Never lived there. I live in New York. Pablo Fajardo was the lead lawyer on the case in Ecuador that vanquished Chevron. He's an Ecuadorian lawyer. We had a whole team of Ecuadorian lawyers. They had the support of international lawyers like me and others. I mean, this was not the work of me or one person. I want to be very clear about that. And it's also not my case. Okay. I'm a lawyer or an advocate serving people who hire me to do this work. This case is owned by the indigenous peoples and farmer communities in Ecuador, about 80 communities who live and work in an area where Chevron via Texaco operated from 1964 to 1992 and deliberately dumped 16 billion gallons of cancer causing oil waste into the environment, into the waters, into the groundwater. And it's still going on. Like you can go down there and see the damage and you can see it's still happening. Pipes out of these waste pits going into streams that people drink out of. This again was a deliberate decision made by Texaco to save money with the you know, clearly foreseeable result that people would die and many have died. This is a great accomplishment historically to win the case. 
It required a lot of work by a lot of people from different countries, also a huge amount of support from donors and, and third party litigation investors, that is people who bought percentages of the claim from the indigenous peoples on the condition they get repaid if there's ever a collection. And this is really a model of litigate of human rights litigation that the world has never seen before, a level of international cooperation, a level of financing that the world has never seen before. You know, Katie and Matt, we're now in year 28 of this, okay? I'm telling you every six months, Chevron has come up with some other idea to pound us thinking we will quit, okay? This is why it keeps going, but we keep getting the resources and support to continue. There are literally dozens of lawyers who worked on this on our side, hundreds, even thousands on their side. And it really is an epic battle, but make no mistake about it, the affected communities in Ecuador are the winners. They won the case. And the reason it's happening, this is happening to me now is because precisely because we won, our team won, and Chevron doesn't want to comply with the rule of law and they prefer to spend money to attack the lawyers. They don't want the precedent of having to write a check to shamans in the rainforest so they can clean up their ancestral lands. That is terrifying to them. So they so will spend mass sums of money to avoid that. So they won, but they didn't win, right? Like you guys won. Well, well, but well, yes. I mean, let me define what I mean by winning. They won the case. The case has been affirmed by 28 appellate judges on appeal, six appellate courts. There is a judgment against Chevron. That judgment can be enforced against Chevron's assets in any country in the world other than the United States because of this ruling against me, okay? So Chevron faces enormous financial risk. And I think the reason they're attacking me and trying to lock me up and they've taken my passport is they don't want me traveling around the world, working with lawyers and telling them the story I'm telling you today, which is, hey, we got to help these people. We got to execute on this judgment and get their assets. They'd rather have me locked up. So when I say they won, that's what I mean. Now, they haven't collected. Right. So Chevron hasn't been held fully accountable. But I am confident, as are other lawyers, even you know who are smarter than me when it comes to international enforcement, that they will be, this judgment will be collected upon or will be settled sometime in due course where they will be able to clean up their ancestral lands and save lives. So I think this is a historic victory. Look, Chevron tries to convince the world that, that we've lost, I'm locked up. Uh-uh, it's not what's happened. We won, I'm locked up because we won. Right. So, you know, it's very important people know that. They want people to look at me and be demoralized. Right. And I'm telling you, look at me, don't be demoralized. We are going to get through this. And there's people in Ecuador, you know, indigenous leaders, community leaders who are sophisticated, powerful people. They don't have a formal education like maybe many of us do. You know, they didn't go to college. They don't have a lot of money. But man, they know the ways of the world and they know they've been screwed by this American oil company and they know how to fight back and they've united to do that and they've done it very successfully. And I'm so damn honored to be able to represent them. So you mentioned an appeal, like what's your legal recourse? And even if you're successful there, will it have any bearing on their ability on, on their or anybody else's ability to do this maneuver again? You'd be shocked at the ability to just start a lawsuit if you have the money. You want to harass someone, sue them. Right. Judges are often naive about these issues or they're pro-corporate and they just let the case go. Um, even if it doesn't result in a verdict one way or another, the very process of having to defend the cases can be just devastating financially, emotionally, and otherwise. Um, you know, our goal is to win, fully win, meaning collect on the money and also get this whole baseless contempt case that's already been rejected by the Department of Justice now being prosecuted privately by Chevron, thrown out. So that's our goal. And we're gonna keep fighting and I have some great lawyers helping. Um, unfortunately, the, the judges I'm dealing with, Kaplan and Preska have links to Chevron and I think they have a very intense ideological agenda to, to use this case to destroy me and also to destroy the people of Ecuador. They don't, they don't like the idea of like a developing nation's judges telling a US company they have to pay a big judgment. And if you think about it, Katie and Matt, think about this. Judge Kaplan is just a trial judge, low level federal trial judge, who basically issued a ruling without a jury based on false Chevron paid witness testimony that I bribed a judge. And he tried to use that to overturn a decision of Ecuador's highest court, Ecuador's Supreme Court, as well as Canada's Supreme Court. They also ruled in favor of our enforcement action. So you have a trial judge trying to rule 
overrule a sovereign nation Supreme Court. Can you imagine if an Ecuadorian trial judge tried to do that to the US Supreme Court? That person will be laughed at, okay? This is what Judge Kaplan has tried to do to the Ecuador Supreme Court from, from his Manhattan trial court. It's, it's unbelievable that people actually give it credibility. I mean, it's just shocking to me that he even attempted to do this and that he's, he's pulled it off to some degree. Yeah, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, what would be the reform that would address the problem of a single judge managing to, to push through an action like this and avoid any kind of jury consideration anywhere along the way? Is, is, there, is there some kind of process that one could insert that would allow you know, somebody in your situation? There are, there are multiple things that could be done to prevent these abuses from taking place. Just off the top of my head, one is if someone's you know, charged, or I should say sued under civil RICO, they must be guaranteed a jury, no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, number two is, I'm not so sure private parties should be allowed to use civil RICO, ever. It's, okay. it's so subject to corporate abuse to do what they've done to me and what they're doing to the Standing Rock protesters. That's a decision best made for a disinterested government prosecutor in my mind. I'm not defending the entire prosecutorial apparatus, but at least they're professionals, okay? Or they try to be. And number three, there needs to be more accountability for our federal judges. I mean, there's no place to go. It's like the most, this trial judge appoints a private Chevron prosecutor. I and mean, we went to the appellate court in New York that protected him. They refused to stop the case. We're now going back to the DOJ to Merrick Garland and insisting, and this is where AOC and Jim McGovern and, and, and Corey Bush and Jamie Raskin and Rashid Tlaib and others have signed a letter demanding that the DOJ take back this prosecution from the private corporate law firm. I mean, I'm probably the only lawyer in America begging the DOJ to prosecute me <laughs> because this is crazy. I would, I would love it to be able to deal with a real prosecutor who could negotiate something or let me free and recognize that I'm not a threat. I mean, this is crazy. I don't think there should be private criminal prosecutions in the United States. I think judges, there needs to be some independent body where citizens can make complaints about federal judges. Right now, all the complaints go to the appellate court that right. oversees the judges in New York. They all work out of the same building. They're social friends. There hasn't been a single complaint that I know of through this process that's resulted in any kind of investigation, much less discipline. I mean, it's just extraordinary. There's no accountability of unfed, lifetime appointed federal judges. And there needs to be some because, look, I think most are good judges. They try to work within the framework of the rule of law in good faith. But if you don't want to do that, and that's Judge Kaplan and Judge Prescott, in my personal opinion, are not doing that. They're abusing their power to help Chevron and to attack me. There's got to be some mechanism to hold them accountable. And right now there's none. Right, right. And by the way, if there was a mechanism, I don't think this would be happening because they would calculate in their heads, well, I'm not gonna be able to do this. Right, so we're not gonna not be able to get away try. with this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You understandably de determined that this was a kind of like a kangaroo court, a farce, right? Had this been a legitimate case or hearing trial, who would you have called in your defense? What would you have said? Well, that's a great question. So I would have testified and explained that all these counts Kaplan lodged against me, against me, which were rejected by the U.S. Attorney's Office, are wrong for various reasons. For example, my refusal to turn my computer over, I was trying to get a direct appeal to the Second Circuit to rule on the issue of the lawfulness of that order, which essentially would strip me of my attorney-client privilege. What I was doing is the traditional thing one does, a lawyer does in my situation. Judge Prescott ruled that I couldn't present that as a defense. The only issue is whether I obeyed the order or not. She says, you can't explain it. I mean, she stripped me of my ability to defend myself. And then on top of that, I would have called many character witnesses, people of very of high integrity, well-known people, lawyers and others, to testify as to my integrity, potentially expert witnesses as to how the decisions I made to you know, litigate against Chevron on the civil side, were ethical, those kinds of things. But we, we determined that that would be a useless exercise given that the judge had, had already ruled on my guilt, obviously before the trial started. By the way, she was up there reading the newspaper during witness testimony half the time 
It was reported by Law 360, and many people observed it. I mean, there was just this really cavalier attitude by Judge Prescott toward the whole proceeding. I mean, she obviously had made up her mind that I was guilty before it started. So, and they didn't you know, let you. I, zoom, I would have. Right? I would have put on a major case. Right. I had a fair court, but of course, you know, remember the, the case had already been rejected, so this shouldn't be happening. So. I don't think you can do this case in a fair court. The judge would have dismissed it already. So it almost by definition has to be unfair, which raises all sorts of questions for the accused in my position, whether you really engage or not. And also they wouldn't let you stream it, right? They wouldn't let it be Oh, Zoom, they, they so. cut off Zoom access, which was so insulting to all the people of Ecuador who wanted to watch it. And you know, every pretrial hearing in this case had had Zoom access. Suddenly she terminates it on the eve of trial. And there's thousands of people all over the world who wanted to watch the trial. So, you know, she was trying to limit public scrutiny. It, it was an embarrassment. I think Judge Prescott did not look good. Um, she wouldn't let me talk at the last day. I was wanted to explain why I wasn't going to testify. She said, no, you either testify or sit down. And she tried to clamp down on, on everything we did. I mean, for example, objections of all the witnesses, she ruled literally in Chevron's, I mean, I say Chevron, in favor of the Chevron prosecutor every single time but one over five days. I mean, she's just extremely biased. So, you know, Ron Kuby and Marty Garvis, my lawyers, we discussed it. Of course, I wanted to testify, but they advised against it. You know, when I thought about it, I'm like, I think that's the right decision. I mean, we, we're going to testify and we are in the court of public opinion with journalists and obviously we'll have a great appeal. She basically denied me my constitutional right to testify in my own defense through her technical evidentiary rulings, which prevented what I could really talk about. Well, it's a, it's a horrifying, yeah. uh, sobering story. I mean, if I had more time, I would ask, like, are, are you frustrated with the lack of coverage? Well, I will say this on that point real quick. You know, I've got journalists flying thousands of miles in from Europe to interview me, and I can't get the New York Times, which is right up the street, 30 minute walk right. from my apartment to come sit with me and do a story about this. And I, you know, no matter what you think of me, no matter what you think of the choices I made, you cannot deny this is an interesting story. Right. This is newsworthy. Sure. There's an American lawyer locked up for almost two years on a misdemeanor without trial who won this big judgment against Chevron. What is going on? I mean, that's the story. So yes, I am frustrated and none of the networks have covered it. Um, you know, but look, we've done our best with those who are, covering it like y'all and the nation, the intercept. And, and, you know, I think our, I think our point of view is getting out there to some degree. Rising we're, democracy now. Rising democracy now. And we're just going to keep doing, we're going to keep you know, pushing it for those who are interested. And we're really, I'm personally super appreciated, appreciative of y'all inviting me on. And I have great admiration for both of you and the work that you do. So thank you very much. For those who want to help, we have a website. It's called freedonziger.org all one word, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. And you can jo join our campaign. You'll get regular communications, case updates. And also if we have a legal defense fund, you can donate if you're so inclined, but come anyway, even if you can't donate, don't worry about it. We do need to raise money though to fight these monsters. And also I do a lot of pretty frequent updates on Twitter. Um, my Twitter is at S Donziger to follow sort of latest developments in the case. You can follow me there. Again, thank you very much, Matt and Katie. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much yeah, thank for you. coming on. And, uh, you know, best of luck uh, in, in your yeah. case, uh, in your appeal. Yeah. Uh, anyway. So. Yeah, really appreciate it. No and problem. go sit outside the doors of your neighbors who work at the New York Times. I know. <laughs> well, he would, except he's under house arrest. Well, but, no, but they yeah. live in your building, right? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, my yeah, building. I still yeah. can't even go out in the oh, hallway. Oh, you can't? I, I can, tell I can... us. Tell, well, after this, give me their names and, and apartment numbers, and I'll do okay. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. Thanks again. Take Thank care. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Take care. That was great, by the way. It was. Right? It was. Scary story. Scary story. They won. Let me rephrase that. They won, but they didn't. What was it? They haven't collected yet. It's very yeah, well, important it's... to frame this as a victory that's been what? Um, Denied. What's the word? A victory denied, yeah. A victory frustrated. You know, its possession is nine tenths of the law. You know, they, they don't have the ability to collect, and and that's that's brutal. But this, you know, this is this process of private RICO prosecutions. There, you know, I saw a couple of those involving 
Wall Street cases. And, you know, it's it's a pretty potent weapon that, that companies have if they want to they want to avail themselves of it. But I, I'd never heard of being able to go through the whole process without any kind of trial and being involved. That's that's a new one. That's so crazy. The documentary Crude is really good. I recommend it. And uh, it's funny because it's like at the end, like Trudy, is that her name? Sting's wife goes there to Ecuador and is very moved. And then they bring this lawyer, Pablo Fajardo, Fajardo Nicaragua. <laughs> of Ecuador. Uh, they bring him to a free Earth, Earth First or some environmental concert that they did. And then the police play um, sending out an SOS. Uh Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looks like they, you know, the SOS worked because they won. Now right. fast forward, and they got to send out that SOS again, or right. You know, see what what other thing? Sending every out step another you take, SOS. Yeah, yeah. Every yep. step you take. That's the other thing that they. That's about how Chevron has responded to this case. Right. They'll be watching him. Right. Right. With the ankle bracelet. Wow. We should just every do this entire story. Yeah. <laughs> Through yeah. police songs. Yeah. I'm sure that's the kind of content that our audience is just aching for. I mean, so. honestly, they probably are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roxanne. Uh, I don't even know what the pun would be there. You don't have to put out put, the what? I don't well, know. Well, you should put out the red light. Stop this case, Roxanne. Roxanne being, she can't really represent Lady Justice because she is a sex worker. Although maybe she can. Maybe that's what it really is about. Lady Justice is a sex worker. Yeah. I'm sure that's been said before. I mean, it has been. Yeah. And you know what? At the end of the day, we are spirits in a material world. <laughs> Please tell me those are the lyrics. I think I think that's right. Yep. Yeah. So Can't that was stand cool. Losing. I won't be able to stand losing this case. <laughs> yeah. Don't stand so close to me. Yeah. When we're doing uh, the show, which, we're, which you're not. So, so yeah. you Social already distance. listened to this song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So that was uh, horrifying, but interesting. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, don't listen to any of our competitors. Nope. Um, if, you, if you think about it, self-harm instead. And, mm-hmm. um, and or we'll harm see. others. I don't like self. I don't, I'm not pro self-harm. Harm others instead. Really? Although I guess it's not fair that other people should pay for your mistakes. Yeah. Foolishness. You're right. Self-harm. Self-harm. Is that going to get uh, us like... That's a joke, right? We have to say that or else we, we have get to arrested. Say that's a joke? I don't know. Oh. Let's lie. Let's lie and pretend it's a joke. Right. Yeah, we're lying that uh that we're joking about that. Yeah. So, uh I think we just made that worse. Anyway, um thanks for tuning in and we'll uh, we'll see you again next week. See you again. Thanks so much for listening to Useful Idiots. Make sure that you check us out. We finally have a YouTube URL. So that is just, not surprisingly, youtube.com slash Useful Idiots. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Rain review us on iTunes. Listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, join the Substack and you'll get bonus content. I don't even like saying bonus content. You get very substantive, important things. And just to clarify for people, the way we're doing it for now is we release our main episode on Fridays and then our paywalled episodes come out on Monday. So you can find all of that and more at usefulidiots.substack.com. Again, that's usefulidiots.substack.com. You can hear our extended interviews with Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, Abby Martin, David Sirota. It's just a great time. It's a great thing to do. And I really highly recommend it. 